Welcome to China Perspectives, a podcast on economic and credit developments in China, featuring experts from within and outside of Fitch Ratings. My name is Andrew Fennell, head of Greater China Sovereigns at Fitch Ratings. Today, I'm pleased to introduce Adrian Cheng, colleague of mine based in Hong Kong. Adrian is Fitch Ratings co-head of Greater China Property. Prior to joining Fitch, he worked in credit ratings advisory at Citigroup and started his career with the Royal Bank of Scotland. Adrian, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Today, we're here to discuss China's property market, with a particular focus on the developers themselves. As I'm sure most listeners are well aware, China's property sector has been under quite a lot of pressure since the middle of 2021, with sharp declines in sales volumes, weak construction activity, many developers experiencing downgrades in their credit ratings, and some even going into outright default. So Adrian, maybe just to start, how would you describe the state of the market as of early 2022? What are you seeing in terms of residential sales trends? And are there any signs the market is bottoming out? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Well, it's a very interesting time for us as well. I think at the end of 2021, we thought that come March, April this year, we would see some signs of things bottoming out. But I think pretty clearly in the past month or so, it is pretty much worse than what we originally expected. Even we are in March now, and what you still see quite a lot of market panic on a few names in the property sector. What was also pretty surprising uh, was that January sales, uh, whether it's month-on-month basis or year-on-year basis, it was pretty much worse than what we expected as well. This is after what happened in December, where we actually saw some growth on a month-on-month basis in contracted sales. That gave some false hopes to the sector. And I think the January sales really surprised the market. You know, are there signs that the market is bottoming out? I think we'll have to see. There have been some policies in February about, you know, lowering the down payments for, for mortgage. We'll have to see how that affects sales in March. Mm-hmm. And how bad are we talking about in terms of month on month or year on year from the high frequency data that you're following? Yeah, I think month on month, what we saw in some of the developers we tracked. So I can give you some names for China Overseas, which is a state-owned developer, and they are a nationwide player. According to my data, in January, the month on month decrease was about 63%. And I think for other players as well, um, even the large players like Seasons or Poly, they range from like minus 20% to some of them were 40%. And there were some names which are which are 60% decrease as well. So okay. it is pretty bad. Yeah, so it's in, significantly in the double-digit contractions still. That, that's correct. I mean, as of early yeah. this year. Yeah, the only exception we saw was Country Garden, which saw a 61% increase compared to December. But that's a bit of a outlier. And that's because Country Garden, usually when they report December, sales numbers it could be part of the sales strategy but usually in the past few years the december contract sales numbers are artificially very low interesting i guess now that we've talked a little bit about the demand side of things could you say a a few words about the supply side what are the latest trends that you're seeing on the property construction and investment side of things and how does that compare with recent discussion just now on the sales trends Yeah, sure. So in the second half of 2021, pretty much all the private developers have not acquired any land. That naturally feeds through to the construction as well, because in a normal business model, one developer would 
buy land, get some basic constructions out, and then sell the properties and continue with the constructions. From first half, given they're not buying land anymore, that element of starting construction new starts has slowed down quite a lot. According to data from WIND, or National Bureau of Statistics, on a rolling, in a trailing six month basis, the actual GFA new starts, gross floor area new starts, we actually have seen some pretty sharp contraction. You know, in February this year, on a trailing six month basis, it was actually minus 20% around that area. And I think that reflects that the deconstruction and investment in property development has fallen quite a lot. Obviously, there are still constructions going on in the property sector, especially the ones which have been sold prior to the first half of 21, when the market was no more normal. Those constructions are still ongoing on the whole. And I think the government is ensuring that the construction of those projects still has to be ongoing. Okay. The projects that had already begun, uh, those are continuing. But there's been a significant decline in starts for new projects, and that's sort of following the very weak demand uh, that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah, and also, you know, as the market knows as well, private developers are facing huge liquidity problems. So that's contributing to that. Okay. Well, I guess with that broader background on the state of the market, why don't we turn to the developers themselves? At Fitch, as I understand it, we rate about 50 Chinese property developers. Maybe if you could give us a little bit of context, how representative would you say that Fitch's developer portfolio is of the industry as a whole? Yeah, the industry is very huge and is very fragmented. And I think a lot of people don't realize how big the market is. It is a 13 to 14 trillion renminbi market. Back to the days when Evergrande was started to be in trouble. I think the headlines were saying, oh, Evergrande is the biggest developer. If they collapse, then it will shake the whole industry, well, which is somewhat true. Uh, but I think the main reason for the industry downturn wasn't directly because of Evergrande. Back to Evergrande's kind of contribution to the overall market. I mean, even when Evergrande is the largest player, their overall sales is about 45% of the overall market. So it's actually not that big, you know, compared to other industries where the biggest player may be like 30 to 40% of the market. We rate about 50 to 60 entities. By my estimate, they would take up about 40 to 50% of the market share. Yes, the top players will still have the larger of the pie, but there are also hundreds, if not thousands of other players which have a very small contribution. Okay, so my takeaway is that we're certainly far away from rating the entire industry, but the 50 to 60 odd names that we do rate are uh, probably a decent proxy uh, for what's happening in, in the market as a whole, um, given you said yes, 40 that's correct. 50. And these 40 or 50s, I would say probably 20 to 30 of them are nationwide players, so they are very well covered within the country. Okay, well, with that background in mind, could you give us a sense of how the market turmoil over the last several months has impacted Fitch's portfolio in terms of ratings downgrades and also defaults? Uh, how would you describe the portfolio's average credit quality today uh, compared to prior to the 2021 market downturn? So from 2018 to 2020, which was a normal year for developers, we saw about 10 to 15 downgrades of property companies. Now, when I say downgrades, I'm not saying how many companies got downgraded. I'm just saying how many times 
there were downgrades. So Fifteen th negative rating actions that's over, over three years? Uh, well, each year. Okay, each year. Each year. Yeah. Okay. So, and it's not negative rating, it's just downgrade. Okay. Yeah. So in 2021, uh, this shot up to 45. Okay. And this started from essentially from names initially in the B category, so like Evergrande, then other B category names like Fantasia, then Cynic, and then it gradually fed through even to some double B players as the panic spread. So like China Aoyuan, we have downgraded them as well. In 2022, um, the trend seems to be continuing as well. Uh, we've seen so far in the first three months, we have seen at least 15 downgrades and I'm sure there will be more. So, so in the first couple of months of 2022, you saw the number of downgrades that you normally saw in the entire year prior to the correction. That, that's correct. Yeah, that's correct. And I think the question you asked about the average credit quality is very interesting because the way we look at average credit quality, it's in theory, we, we look at a comprehensive package of, of a developer, right? Like, for example, what you know, how big are they? Whether there's any business risk from a particular region, you know, especially if they are a regional player, then there could be more risk for them because if a city or region has some very harsh policies, then they would be affected. And then we will look at things like leverage and coverage and liquidity as well, right? That's in a normal market. But what we are really seeing now is a very different scenario where we are seeing a sector-wide decrease in market confidence. And it's a very sudden decrease in market confidence as well. So I've said it before in other places, this is akin to like a bank run where, okay, in normal years, banks, even the healthiest banks are doing well, or even the less healthy banks are doing well. But when everyone you know, ha has a lack of confidence in the banking system, everyone will get the cash out. And even the strongest banks are not going to, you know, they're going to run into trouble. Um, so this, it's a classic case of contagion, what is happening right now. Exactly, exactly. So the focus we have, you know, you can say, okay, average credit quality, yeah, the developers may have normal operation, though they are paying down debt uh, with their cash, so actually leverage has been going down. So in theory, that, that's like in terms of leverage, they are actually stronger. But then the focus now today is on their liquidity and refinancing risk when there's a shutdown. So average credit quality today, yes, much worse, but that's really driven by liquidity and refinancing risk, which at this point we are the most focused on. Okay, well, I guess then we got to talk about liquidity and uh, refinancing risk. Yeah. My understanding is that in the last several months, pretty much all but the strongest developers have been shut out of external capital markets. So assuming that this is how you see the situation still, you know, what have been the primary sources of funding for developers? Well, at this point, it really comes from cash. Like, in, firstly, the internal cash already on balance sheet. The other source is obviously from the operations. So contractor sales, they do, right? That's very clear. But what's happened in the last few months or two things, right? So sales have been falling significantly. So their source of cash flow has decreased a lot. But secondly, and the market is talking a lot about this, is a lot of these cash which they get from sales actually first have to be trapped in what's called an escrow account because the government mandates them to, you need to put that cash into the account to ensure projects get completed. Now what's happened in the last half a year or so was, you know, after some developers got into trouble, local governments were asking 
developers to keep more cash in these escrow accounts. So they can't use that cash to repay debt or, or do anything else. So that, that really exacerbates the problem. So even the cash that they do generate, they are prohibited from using it in many cases to pay down debts that are coming due. Correct. Maybe while we're on this topic, could you comment on the debt maturity profiles and what lay, what they look like this year or over the coming few quarters? If refinancing challenges remain, is there sufficient cash and liquidity available to make these upcoming debt payments? When I look at the offshore debt maturity this year, that's only for our rated portfolio. There is 40 billion USD due in 2022. In terms of onshore, there's 160 billion CNY. For the offshore, we are actually coming to a point where there's a peak of maturity. So March and April is, is a peak. There's a total of around USD 10.5 billion maturing in those two months. We are going to see another smaller peak in June or July, which um, by my count, it totals about 8.5 billion. For the remainder year, there are still some debt maturities, but actually there's a slight decreasing trend afterwards. And what about domestic capital market financing or domestic loans? Are they still able to access those to refinance the external maturities or are those relatively closed now for some of the weaker developers as well? Yeah, I think you may be talking about the onshore bank debt, bank loans, all that, right? Given the regulations in the past few years, the bank loans lent to developers are usually just property development loans. So they, they have to be used for developing the project itself. So in theory, they can't take out that loan or take out that cash and repay offshore maturity or any other debt. Although in practice, it will free up some cash at the holding company level to do so. So from our, what we hear from developers, look, bank funding for development is still pretty strong. I think the government is encouraging banks to continue to lend to developers on this, but that's not going to help the uh, repayment of the capital market debt because they can't use that to do so. Okay, so with billions of dollars of debt coming due in March and April, still significant refinancing challenges. I mean, what are developers doing to stay in business? Are they going to be able to stay in business uh, into the second half of this year? I guess it's going to be on a case-by-case basis, but what are what are your expectations for the potential for future defaults? Mm-hmm. I think in general, there are several types of companies in there. So there are some developers with a lot of good assets, um, a lot of good maybe investment properties as well. They could try to, and, and a lot of good like development projects in strong cities that they could afford to dispose of. And we've seen example of this, say, you know, for example, Shimao. So Shimao has disposed of um, one of the Guangzhou projects to a, to an SOE. And they have disposed of one of the hotels in Shanghai. So that helps them to get additional source of liquidity to try to cover the maturity is pretty large coming up. So that helps. But other than that, I mean, for developers which may not have so many assets, they may not have so much cash coming in from sales. The only way they may need to consider is, well, okay, do I use my cash to pay off my maturities? And even if I use my cash to pay off the maturities, say, next month, am I going to be able to pay my maturities in August when if the market remains shut? So the question for them is both ability, but also the intention to do so. If I can't repay the, the August one, why do I try to repay the April one? I, I Maybe I just do a debt exchange. Let's lengthen the maturity by a year or two for both bonds. And then we can go from there when the market picks up, if, if it ever picks up. Well, yeah. 
frankly, from what you're telling us, it sounds like there are still some very significant challenges ahead. With this in mind, I think it's probably a good time for us to pivot to the policy response. The Chinese authorities have been easing macro policy since late last year, including cuts to banks' reserve requirement ratios and the policy rate. And importantly, I think we've been noting this in the sovereigns team, credit growth has reversed earlier trends and is now accelerating. Could you shed a little bit of light on any measures aimed at supporting the property markets? And in your view, will these be sufficient to stabilize the sector? I don't think anyone knows. I think if even if you ask developers, they don't really know themselves. Because to me, we did think that, okay, well, the mortgage loosening back in, in 2021 may have an effect on the December sales. But come January, suddenly all the sales also collapsed. So whether the, the loosening back then had a positive effect or a longer term positive effect, it didn't seem clear that there was. There seems to be a short term effect and that was it. I don't think we are in a position to make a very fair assessment of whether government policy works is working yet. I do think we want to see how the March sales turn out to be uh, before we make that judgment. But from some of the news that I've been seeing, it seems like in some cities, the recent lowering of mortgage, lowering of down payment requirement, that appeared to have some effects on sales. And I was reading some news from a developer. Um, they were saying, oh, there, there's actually some queues now for, for some of the sale offices. So maybe that's a sign of a things um, improving in terms of the sales. Yeah. Okay, so if I recap, perhaps what we can say is that macro policy easing is taking place. There have been tweaks to property-related policies it's a little bit too early to tell to what degree they are impacting sentiment and whether they're going to be sufficient to stabilize the market. Yes, that's correct. And because, you know, as you say, there's confidence issues. There are also a lot of factors at play at the moment uh, within different stakeholders in the in the sector. It is going to be very complex exercise for the government as well to see how do they balance not letting leverage. Um, getting out of hand in the sector, but also you don't want the sector to be, be out of control and actually just die off. Okay, maybe one last follow-up on this topic, uh, which is the role of SOEs. I think typically during times of e economic pressure in China, the authorities tend to engage SOEs to get involved, maybe to make acquisitions, to, to uh, make private placements. Is that occurring right now uh, for the developers in your portfolio or what you can see across a broader market? Yeah, that, that appears to be happening. So, you know, we have seen um, China South City selling some stakes to a local Shenzhen SOE uh, called Shenzhen SEZ Construction and Development. As I mentioned earlier, Shumao, they sold some assets as well. Um, the Guangzhou project is actually called Guangzhou Asian Game City. They sold it to China overseas, another SOE. They also sold the highest on the Bund uh, to Shanghai land, which is a local SOE as well. From what we heard from various sources as well, I mean, the local government seems to be, various local governments are guiding property developers in terms of their asset disposal process. Um, they're trying to find SOE buyers for these pro projects. So it's happening, but again, 
SOEs, they have their own consideration, their own financial metrics to, to meet as well. I mean, after all, a lot of these property SOEs, they are also quite market-driven in, t- in their operation. So it's not like the SOEs are going to be rescuing every project, but they're going to be buying ones which make sense to them. Okay, so there's no guarantee that SOEs will necessarily get involved to uh, to support some of the struggling developers. That, that's correct. Could you also say a few words about financial transparency? You know, looking through some of the media coverage, one commonality among some of the developers that have gotten into trouble appears to be the subsequent discovery of these so-called hidden debts uh, that are not captured in the financial statements that were published. Uh, could you give a few examples or maybe help us elucidate us on what has been going on here uh, and whether this practice is widespread? Typically, from our understanding, there are quite a few developers which do this. And essentially, these are bonds which are issued by either unrelated entities to the uh, rated entity. So it may be a third party they partner with in some projects, or it may just be a third party they have no relation with, but they're kind of good on good terms with each other. So these bonds are issued issued by these third parties, but the rated developer itself provides the guarantee to this bond. I, I don't think the developers are still fully transparent on the structure of these bonds itself, but from what we know, there are several reasons why these don't come up in the um, guarantees in the financial statements or in the footnotes of the financial statements. One could be that in some arrangements, the third party you know, issues the bonds, the rated developer guarantees it, but the third party then gives a counter guarantee back to that bond. So it cancels out each other. Now, I'm not an auditor, but we're not auditors. And I, I don't know the reason why this could count as not a guarantee in the statement, but that could be one reason of not appearing. The other thing we've, we've also heard is that some guarantees, it may be just from the rated developer to the third party, to the bond issuance. But for some reason, the way it's structured is that these guarantees don't apply on June the 30th and 31st of December. And oh, that's awkward. That's, that's strange. <laughs> so the reporting date, the date that one is supposed to report the financial statements, the guarantees are not required to be reported for some reason. Correct, correct. And, and this is actually more common for Hong Kong listed developers that use the Hong Kong FRS accounting standards. From what we know, onshore listed companies where they use Chinese GAAP in the financial statement, that is not allowed. So if they do these kind of private bonds, they will have to disclose it in the guarantees. Well, thanks for that. Final question for you, Adrian. For much of its recent history, I I think most people would characterize China's property sector as extremely large. I think you told us, I can't remember how many trillion in renminbi terms, but very large, highly fragmented, and for the most part, largely private owned. Once the dust has settled on this ongoing market correction, whenever that is, do you think this description will still be appropriate? And if not, in your view, what is China's property industry going to look like in the future? I think in the short run, there will be some consolidation. I mean, obviously it's happening now. The land acquisitions are very much done by the SOEs, perhaps some of the strongest private property developers. And in terms of the acquisition of projects from distressed developers, 
that's also done by the SOE as well. So there is consolidation happening. But again, it is very hard to say what the sector will look like in the future. I don't think anyone knows. But eventually, at some point, depending on how the government intervenes in the market, the dust will settle. I think at that point, we will have to relook at how the private players can take part in the industry. I would imagine a lot of very small players and probably all the the unrated ones, a lot of these would, would have been gone uh, by then. There may be some rated developers, they may have issues with going concern. But I think actually a lot of these may be able to survive. Just perhaps their scale, the business model may have to change going forward. Okay, interesting. Well, well, thank you very much for your time today. It was really a fascinating conversation. I learned quite a lot. Yeah, thanks a lot, Andrew. You've been listening to Fitch Ratings China Perspectives podcast. To learn more about our ratings and research on China, visit us at fitchratings.com. Please subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take care and until next time.